As we come now to the scripture, let me ask you please to, uh, to pray with me. Father in heaven, now we come to this which is your word. I pray that you will enable us to not only hear it, but that you would cause this word, these promises to burn in our hearts. We wouldn't just hear them and sort of, you know, check it off. We heard them again, but that on this day, that you would work in such a way that they would burn within us and that we would realize that if these promises are not true, we have no life at all, no hope. But because they are true, we have life and great hope. So, Father, work these things in us now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to Second Corinthians in chapter 7. 2 Corinthians in chapter 7, please. I was going to read the whole chapter and try to get through it, but I'm only going to read the first verse. That's all we'll have time for. Sorry. I'm not sorry. What do I mean? So 2 Corinthians chapter 7, please. And just verse 1 right now for today. Bless you. Uh, This is the word of God. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord. We wait. Right? We're waiting. Believers in every generation have waited. Um, Adam waited. He had been given a promise. The promise was that from the seed of the woman would come one who would crush the head of the serpent. He waited. Abraham was given a promise. From his seed, all the nations of the world would be blessed. He waited. Moses was given the promise that a prophet like him, greater than Moses, would come. And not only deliver people from slavery to other people, but slavery to sin. He waited. David was given a promise that one would come and sit on his throne and righteously rule and reign forever. He waited. The the prophets told of one who was to come with them, they and the people waited. The prophetess Anna in the temple at the age of 84 years was waiting. He came, this Jesus came, he was born, came and gave himself as a ransom for many, died for the sins of sinners, rose again. He ascended. We wait. That's the theme of Advent. Uh, we, we talk about the arrivals of Jesus, but inter, interwoven in this time of the year is our understanding of, of, of waiting. At the end of our worship service during Advent season, we make this declaration, Christ has come, and he has. But then we make the declaration, he's coming again. We're waiting still for that. That's where we live. In fact, one of the things that strikes me as we've been working our way through, reading our way through Second Corinthians, is this aspect of waiting. Because Paul speaks of his life as lived to the full, lived with joy. But yet in the midst of that, there is sorrow and trouble. In fact, you might remember we've been uh, citing from time to time 
uh, Revelation chapter 1, verse 9, where uh, John uh, says to the church, we're partners in the tribulation and in the kingdom of God and in patient endurance. That's the time we live. We live in tribulation. There's trouble. But at the same time, the kingdom of God has come. And so how do we live? We live in patient endurance. We're waiting. We're waiting for the completion of this. We're waiting for the utter fulfillment of this. We're waiting for Jesus uh, to return. So what I want to do today and then next week, our last two Sundays of Advent, is speak very directly, we have been already, but speak very directly to this time of waiting. Today I just want to pick up this verse I read, especially this opening expression, since we have these promises. We wait by living upon the promises that God gives to us. We're waiting Because God has made promises and we can wait because he's made promises. And then next week I want to talk about uh, verse 6 really. Where Paul says that God is the one who comforts the downcast. So what can we expect during this time of waiting? We can expect to live on promises. Number one. That's this week. And next week we can expect that when times are difficult God will give us strength. Right? So that's the last two Sundays and that event. Notice this expression. Since we have these Promises. Now we know what promises are. We know that when one makes a promise, one is saying, guaranteeing really, if the promise is any good, that something is going to happen or that what you said is going to happen is going to happen. That's a promise. We make promises formal and informal. We make promises like I'll pick you up at six. Right? It's a promise. Uh, We make more formal promises, I suppose, at a wedding when vows are exchanged. Very formal, very important, very significant Promises, promises are in contracts that we make, make promises. And if the promiser is trustworthy, then the one receiving that promise arranges his or her life around that promise. If somebody says they're going to pick you up at six, then you arrange your life around the fact that you're going to get picked up by that person at six. And if they don't show up, then you've sort of rearranged your life for nothing. Right? And what Paul tells us is that God has made promises to us And those promises that he's made to us should change our lives, that we should rearrange our lives around them. In fact, Paul says very dramatically, because of these promises, we we should cleanse ourselves from every defilement and bring holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord. That's the action that we're to take in the in the in the consequence of in the in the context of these promises that are given to us. We're to live on these promises. That God gives to us and arrange our lives, to arrange our lives around them, really. John Bunyan um, wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, also wrote an autobiography. uh, And the title of it could be a title any of us could use if we wrote an autobiography, which is Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. So that was the title of his life story, if you will. And in one particular part, he was telling the story of, of how he had been in prison for a number of years, 12 years, really, because he was preaching the gospel. And, uh, and he was in prison for 12 years. And of course, prisons in those days, they're never pleasant. But in those days were uh, very difficult places. And no one really cared for you while you were in there. And 
Nobody cared for your family while you were in there. And so he wrote that in order for him to suffer properly while he was in prison, he needed to, know, he needed to learn two things. The second of which was this. He said, in order for me to suffer rightly, I need to know how to live upon God who is invisible. He says, I have nothing else. I need to learn to live upon God and I can't see him. And you might say, well, how could you learn to live upon God? What did you mean by that, Mr. John Bunyan? What did you mean to live upon God? And he said, well, I need to learn to live upon that which is unseen. Because as the apostle writes, and we've done this in chapter 4, verse 18, that that which is unseen is eternal, that which is seen is temporal. I need to learn to live upon God who is unseen. Well, how do you do that? He says, well, then I need to learn to live upon the promises that God has made. And for Bunyan, that meant, for instance, the biggest one was he needed to learn to live upon the promise that God had given that God would be the father to the fatherless because he had children and he had one daughter who was blind and he knew that Without him to provide, she would likely die. And so he prayed and he trusted and he lived up. The only way he said I could survive that time thinking of my daughter Mary was to live on this promise that God said he would be the father to the fatherless. And I believed that he would be. Therefore, I could take my next breath. And of course, God was gracious to his family. And so that's it. You see, we we need to learn as the people of God, to live upon the promises of God, to live upon God who is invisible, to live upon the unseen, because the unseen is is eternal. We need to live upon these promises. And so when they come to us, we mustn't just simply write them down and hum them. Oh yes, I know that, I've heard that before. But somehow these promises need to work in us in such a way that we rearrange our whole lives around them. That, that, that they become the, the, the direction, the director of our lives really. And our very joy. And to realize that if these things are true, we have no life at all. Do you remember that after Jesus rose from the dead... There were a couple of men walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus on the road by that title, the road to Emmaus. And do you remember they were downcast and sad because Jesus had been killed and they thought all hope was lost. They had heard from some of the women that he had risen from the dead, but what could that mean? And so they were, they were leaving Jerusalem. And you remember that Jesus came upon them. And uh, I don't know if he was smiling at the whole time, but they didn't recognize him, of course. And so he's asking them about the day and about Jesus and why they were so downcast. And they told him about that. And the scripture says that Jesus opened the scriptures to them from Moses on through. And you remember that when they came to their place of arrival, they asked Jesus to stay with them. And so he came in with them and they were going to eat together and he broke bread. When they did... They recognized him and he vanished. But you remember what they said? What they said was this. Didn't our hearts burn within us when he opened the scriptures to us? And that's what I pray for. When I hear the promises of God, that they would burn my heart. 
that they would sink so deep and be so much a part of who I am that I consciously and unconsciously arrange my thoughts and my words and my actions around them. The very promises of God. So Paul says, since we have these promises, what promises? Well, if you'll bump up a bit into chapter 6. We read these promises last week. They come in the middle of verse uh, 16 in chapter 6. The apostle quoting the Old Testament, he says, I will make my dwelling among them and walk with them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So the promises that we have, number one, that God will dwell with us. Number two, that he will walk among us. Number three, that he will be our God and will be his people, will belong to him. Number four, that he'll welcome us. Number five, that he'll be a, a father to us, and thus will be his sons and daughters. Those are the promises of God. And again, what we want is for them to burn within us, right? To, to, be, to become so much ingrained in us that because we can believe that he dwells with us, because we believe that he walks with us, everywhere we go, he goes. Because we believe that he is our God, a personal, intimate thing, and we are his people, because we believe that he welcomes us, because we believe that he's our father and we're his sons and that because we believe that, because we receive and believe that it burns in us that our whole lives, everything that we think and everything that we say and everything that we do, our whole lives will be arranged around those promises. That everything that we think, do and say can, can go back to the fact somehow that we know that God dwells within us and walks with us and is ours and we his and that wel- he welcomes us. That he's our father. So when we say that God dwells with us and walks with us, isn't it true that God dwells with everyone? I mean, isn't it true that God is everywhere present? Isn't it true that, that God's everywhere all the time? I mean, isn't that what we mean when we say an attribute of God is that he's omnipresent? And the answer to that question, of course, is yes, we do believe that God is omnipresent. But no, we don't believe that God dwells everywhere with everyone. When we talk about the omnipresence of God, the theological term, you can write this down and use it uh, next time you're on an airplane and want to quiet someone. Uh, it, it works. Uh, uh, we, we talk about the immensity of God. That God is immense. And it, it means just that. When you think of immense, it means, wow, he's huge. Well, when we talk about the immensity of God, what we're talking about is that God really is everywhere present. He's indivisibly present everywhere. So God is here, 100%, and he's in China, 100%. And he's in Iraq, 100%. And he's in New York City, and he's in London, and he's in, he's in uh, uh, Sao Paulo. He's, he's everywhere present. He's not a clone of him that he kind of sends out. He doesn't simulcast. You know, he's not FaceTiming the world. He's, he's everywhere present. But that doesn't mean he dwells everywhere. He, he dwells, he lives, he takes up his home only among his people. 
And that's his promise to us. See, we were made, human beings were made to live in the presence of God and for God to dwell among us. But because of sin, of course, that ruined everything. You might even remember the expression in in Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve sinned, the Bible says that God was walking in the cool of the garden, but Adam was hiding from him. Why? Because Adam didn't want to be around God because of his sin. And eventually, of course, God expelled Adam and Eve from the garden. And so there was no longer that dwelling of God with people in that sense. Was he everywhere? Was he in the garden and outside of the garden? Well, yeah, but he wasn't dwelling with his, he wasn't dwelling. Didn't make his home with them. But then he began to get for himself a people, call for himself a people amongst whom he could dwell. And so we have then the promises to Abraham. We have the promises to Moses. And then as, as the people are gathered out of Egypt at Sinai and, and, and the, the people come together as the people of God in the presence of God, Moses is instructed to have a tabernacle built. And this tabernacle will be the very dwelling place of God. It's the, the tent of meeting where God will meet with his people. And it'll be the center of community. And and the the Shekinah glory, the glory of God will be there, you see. In fact, the distinguishing mark, the distinguishing characteristic of the people of God is that God dwells among them. You might remember when it got difficult with Moses and the people after Moses had gone up to the mountain and gotten the Ten Commandments and brought them down and saw the people in great sin and worship of idols and so forth. Moses, you know, smashed down the tablets and all that. That there was a, a discussion between Moses and God. And Moses essentially, I mean, God essentially said to Moses, uh, I'll send you with him, Moses, but I'm not going. And, and Moses' counter to that was, but God, we're your people. How can we be your people if you're not with us? I mean, that's the distinguishing mark of God's people, that God is dwelling among them. And so not only would God dwell among them and walk with them in this tabernacle, but eventually the temple. And you remember that the, the temple well, was the very presence of God Solomon built. And, and, and the scripture says in First Kings that when the temple was dedicated, that the name of God was there. That means the presence of God was there. The dwelling place of God amongst his people was right there. I told you before, I think, when I was a kid, uh, we didn't have mailboxes in our uh, houses. We had little mail slots in our front doors. Uh, there was a little door in the front door and had a little cutout in it and used this little thing that went over it, a little flap. Usually it was, depending on how wealthy you were, it could any, be anywhere from sort of some kind of plain metal to like bronze, you know, for the rich people. And, uh, and uh, so the mailman, and I can say that because he was then, uh, came and he would open the slot and you'd end up with your mail in the foyer because uh, that's how it was done. But what people did was people would have their names engraved on the mail slot because that was your house. And for years, I, I didn't know about the number thing. I thought, how does this guy know to put the mail at our house? Well, because we have our name on the little mail slot. That's how. So when I read that God's name was on the temple, I said, ah. That's where God gets his mail. Uh, And he does, you know, because Solomon was told, when you pray, pray to the temple, pray here, presence of God. That's where he was around his people. But we know, again, in ancient Israel, 
Sin happened. And one of the most oh, devastating, probably, emotionally devastating passages in all the Bible to read is in Ezekiel, where Ezekiel has a vision and he sees the Spirit of God leaving the temple. I don't know that there could be a sadder passage than that in all, the, all of the scripture. And then the temple is destroyed. The people are exiled to Babylon. And then God, in, God welcomes the people back. He welcomes them back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. But he says, you've got to separate yourself from the Babylonians. Leave them. Leave the Babylonian gods behind. Repent, if you will. And come back and rebuild the temple. So Ezra and Zerubbabel and others rebuild the temple. But the prophet Haggai tells us that when the temple was rebuilt... People were sad. And you go, how could they be sad when their temple was rebuilt? And, and the answer is because they expected more glory than what, the, what was there in the temple. And they would wait for more glory because more glory would come. Because more glory did come. And the more glory came in the person of Jesus. And the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. The very glory of God. In fact, remember Jesus uh, said to them, if you destroy this temple, I'll rebuild it in three days. And of course, he was talking about his body, not the temple that took 46 years to build. So he says, you destroyed it. I'll rebuild it in three days. I'm the very presence of God. And then you remember that Jesus told his disciples that the promise of the Father would come. And the promise of the Father was the Holy Spirit who would come. And you remember how Jesus described his coming. He said, he will live among you, dwell among you, and live in you. And Jesus said that it'd be so close that we could use the word abide. That the very word of Jesus would abide, would live in his disciples. And so it was no surprise after Jesus ascended and the Holy Spirit came that the Apostle Paul on various occasions, and Peter too, would describe the church as the temple of the Holy Spirit, the very dwelling place of God, that he dwells in us and among us. In fact, Paul says those very words in chapter 6 of 2 Corinthians, for we're the temple of the living God. As God said, I'll make my dwelling among them. I'll walk. You see... The very Spirit of God is, is here, dwelling in us and among us. And, and that's thrilling, of course. But, but I don't know about you, but it's not as glorious as I had expected. And the reason it's not as glorious as I had expected is because I, I see me. And by the way, I see you. And I think, this should be more glorious uh, with, the, with, with the God dwelling among us. And he said, well, wait, there's more glory coming. So when John in the Revelation is, is seeing what he sees after the return of Jesus, he writes this, Revelation 21, 3, he says, behold, the dwelling, he said, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will uh, dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be, them, be with them as their God. And so more glory is coming, you see. The, on the new heavens and the new earth, the very presence of God among his people, and there'll be no sin or consequence from it. And then in verse 22, he said, And I saw the temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord uh, God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. So, so no temple, temple, but God is there. Thus no walls are needed, and he is 
there present dwelling among his, his people, you see. And we, when we hear that, our hearts sort of burn within us. And we're to realize if that's not true, if God isn't with us, if he doesn't dwell among us, if he doesn't walk with us, if we're not his people, if he's not our God, then we have no life. And life is not worth it, whatever it is. This is the only thing that can really satisfy. Because you see, when he dwells, it means it's personal. He makes his home among us. That's why the apostle could, could write this prayer, pray this prayer for the church in Ephesus. In Ephesians chapter 3, I said, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, verse 14, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. In other words, that he would dwell, That's, that means live permanently, take up residence in you, meaning he's going to remodel. He's going to form your heart, my heart, in such a way that reflects him. I mean, if you walk into our house, you, could, you would say, Karen Vogler lives here. You walk into my office and you'd say, Bill Vogler lives here. Right? They, they reflect. They, they reflects. Well, our hearts, you see, are to reflect the very dwelling of Jesus, a personal thing in us. Because, you see, it's so personal. That he says to us, I'm your father. Now you do know that when Jesus introduced prayer to his disciples. And he said, pray this way, our father. It was shocking. To address God like that. It's rather ho-hum for you and me. And in the culture in which we live, the headline is, in various forms, that we're all children of God. But you know, that isn't true. Oh, it's true that we're all God's offspring, as the scripture says. But as we know, we talked about a couple of weeks ago and other times, that the only way to become a child of God is to believe in Jesus. For God to be your father is to believe in Jesus. You remember Jesus talking to the Pharisees. And they said, God is our father. And Jesus said, if you believed in me, then God would be your father. But since you don't believe in me, God isn't your father. In fact, the devil is your father. Wow. The turn of events, isn't it? Wake up in the morning thinking you're a child of God. Go to bed knowing you're a child of Satan. And so John in his gospel introduces this to us. And when Jesus came, he gave the right to become children of God. And that right was given to only those who were born, not of flesh and blood, not of the will of a, of a, of a man, but by the will of God. Only those born of the Spirit. In fact, in 1 John chapter 3, we have the apostle thinking this through again, I think. And now he's astounded. Uh, 1 John 3 verse 1. To see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Now, I read out of the English Standard Version generally. Um, and, and, and that's rather understated, I think, because many of the translators are British. It really should be in all caps... And it really should be, and this is what we are. Like, wow, who would have ever thought of that? That's unfathomable, that we would be 
children of God. That he would be our father. In that very intimate sense. Mentioned in the first service that uh, one of the things I like most about being a grandfather is seeing my kids with their kids. Uh, We always say we go visit the grandchildren, and that's true, but really we go visit our grandchildren's parents. Uh, because it's delightful to watch our kids with their kids. And the reason that it is, is that every time I see our kids with their kids, I think about our kids. Now they know how much we love them. Because as they love their children, they should begin realizing how much They're loved by their parents. In other times, with your own kids, you know this, when you've got to just hug them. Sometimes when they're being their worst. There's something about that. There's something about that connection. There's something about that draw. There's something about that relationship. There's something about that. And you say that I just have to see them. I have to touch them. I have to talk to them. I have to be with them. I have to hear from them. I have to do because there's just it's just different than anybody else. And, 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 and there's no other way to, to explain that. And so I know that sometimes our understanding of God as father is all messed up because of either fathers that we've had or fathers that we are. But you have to realize that God is the perfect father. And he loves us in such a way that delights in us. He loves us in such a way unfathomably that he finds joy in us. He loves us in such a way that he desires to to do good for us and to us. So much so that he arranges all that is in terms of uh, circumstances and so forth, whether we can see it now or not, to be good for us and for his glory. And it's it's just unfathomable to us to think that. And 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 so I see my kids with their kids and they say, I hope they get it. I hope they know now how much I love love them and 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 i hope we can get it to see how much god really loves us he is our father which means he's always available to listen he's always there with us to bless decades ago when i was in seminary a seminary professor a friend of ours gave us a book uh, by a muslim woman who had become a christian and the title of the, of, the, of the book is startling, startling to any American who, who rather casually understands God as father. And the title of the book is this, I dared to call him father. I dared to call him father. I dared to be that bold, that audacious, that presumptive to call God father. And, and she tells her story, and this was way back in the 60s, really, and uh, 70s when she became a Christian. And, and uh, she tells her story, and, and she talks about reading the Quran, and she talks about the fact she was looking for comfort in the Quran from Allah, and she couldn't find it, really. But the Quran had spoken about the Bible, not in good terms, obviously, but to looking at the Bible. And she began to think, should I read the Bible, too? And, and finally, she acquired a Bible. And so she began to read both of them and began to think. And, and, and uh, she thinks, she, she writes this. She says, for several days, I found myself alone with two books, the Quran and the Bible. 
I continue, continued to read them both, studying the Quran because of the loyalty of a lifetime, delving into the Bible because of a strange inner hunger. Yet sometimes I'd draw back from picking up the Bible. God couldn't be in both books. I knew that because their messages were so different. And then she began to think. She thought, as a little girl, my father didn't mind if I bothered him. When I had a question or problem, no matter how busy he was, he would put aside his work to devote his full attention just to me. It was well past midnight as I lay in bed savoring this wonderful memory. Oh, thank you, I murmured. To God. Was I really talking to God? Suddenly, a breakthrough of hope flooded me. Suppose, just suppose... God, we're like a father. If my earthly father would put aside everything to listen to me, wouldn't my heavenly father? Shaking with excitement, I got out of bed, sank to my knees on the rug, looked up to heaven, and a rich new understanding. I called God my father. I was not prepared for what happened. Oh, father, my father, father God. Hesitantly, I I spoke his name aloud. I, I tried different ways of speaking to him. And then, as if something broke through for me, I found myself trusting that he was indeed hearing me, just as my earthly father had always done. Father, oh my father, I cried. And then I prayed. But father, I'm confused. I have to get one thing straight away. I reached over to the bedside table where I kept the Bible and the Quran side by side. I I picked up both books and lifted them, one in each hand. Which, Father, I said, which one is your book? Then a remarkable thing happened. Nothing like it had ever occurred in my life in quite this way. For I heard a voice inside my being, a voice that spoke to me clearly as if I were repeating words in my inner mind. They were fresh, full of kindness yet at the same time full of authority. In which book do you meet me as your father? I found myself answering, in the Bible. That's all it took. Now there was no question in my mind, which was his book? To which she later says, no question in my mind to which promises were true. He's my father. The promises are true. And so you see, these promises are to have consequences. That is to say, when we receive them, when they burn in our hearts, when they work in us, to rearrange everything. And we're now to live in the fear of the Lord. Now, you remember a few weeks ago, but by the way, there was no Sunday school today, so this is going to be Sunday school too. Hang on, not too long. But a few weeks ago, I mentioned this. I said, what do we fear we worship? We wor- what we worship, we obey. Remember that? We fear we worship. What we worship, we obey. If you're afraid of the dark, it, it, it dictates your life. Dark does. You worship it. You obey it. Now, you realize that you can obey one you fear because you hate them. You may have had a boss in your life. I won't use the word hate of you, but maybe you didn't like this boss a lot. But you still obeyed this boss because you were afraid of this boss because you knew what this boss could do to you if you didn't obey. 
When Paul writes that we're to fear the Lord, it's not that. When he talks about fearing the Lord, he's talking about loving him, being captivated by him. That these promises are such that you can see that nothing else could satisfy my life. There's no other way to live except according to these promises. You're captivated by them. You're wowed by them. You're wowed by him. And if these promises come from him and he is your father and he is true and he is with you, then then of course, why wouldn't you arrange your life around them? What could be better than that? And so he says, you see, these promises cause you to fear him, to love him. I could use this term generically, idolize him, right? You see him, you know him to be God, the one you are to follow. And that's not a bad thing. That's life. And there is no life apart from that. So then he says, cleanse yourself. And you say, well, I thought, I thought, I thought God was supposed to cleanse me. And, and he does. But, but, but you see, once we're cleansed and we continue that Cleansing as we confess our sin according to First John. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But now he says, okay, I want you to cleanse yourself. That is to remove yourself from sin. Stop sinning. That's what he means. And you say, well, how can I do that? Well, that's when he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Philippians chapter 2. It's going to take intention. It's going to take observation. It's going to take energy. It's going to take your involvement to be conscious of your life and conscious of your sin and to confess it, to name it, to repent from it, to turn from it, to put it to death in more dramatic terms as the scripture says. And you say, well, do I have any hope? Yes. Because that passage in Philippians 2 says to work out your salvation in fear and trembling for, that is because, it is God who is at work in you to will and to do for his good pleasure. So we're working out what God is working in all the time. So you ask, how do you know these promises are true? Those of you who know me, That's all of you pretty much because I tell you everything (laughs) pretty much. I don't talk any other time during the week. (laughs) Pretty much. Um, A number of verses I could list. I don't know how many, but one in particular upon which I live. Because I asked that question, how do I know this is true? The verse upon which I live when I ask that question is this, from Romans chapter 8. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? He gave us his son. He did that. He promised to and he did it. Why would he withhold anything else once he's given us his son? What could be more valuable than his son to give us? And that's the logic, you see, of it. He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? And the answer is, 
Of course he will. And so when he makes the promise that will dwell among you, will he? Yes. Because he gave us his son. Will he walk with us? Yes. Will he go where we're going? Yes. Not only that, he'll get there first. That's the great thing about his immensity. He can be with you and ahead of you and behind you all at the same time. And so he's already there. So once you get there, he's arranged things. Sometimes you may not like the way they're arranged, but he's arranged things. For when you get there, and he's with you while he's there, and he'll be with you even after you leave it. So they're really true. He really is. The one who is our father. The perfect father. Nothing like any father you've had. In that sense of perfection. Nothing like any father you've been. That's the good news. The perfect father. Hmm. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. After giving thanks, he broke it. He gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me in the same way. He took the cup. And again, after giving thanks, this too he gave to his disciples. And he said, this cup is the new covenant promises. New covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. The apostle adds, for as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we declare the Lord's death until he comes. What are we declaring? So many things. But on this day, we're declaring that his promises are true. And that his promises are trustworthy. And his promises burn our hearts. And his promises then arrange our whole lives. They're not true, we're sunk. They are true, thus. We have life. Let's pray, Father. I pray now you'll take this bread and this juice and you'll set it apart in such a way that we know that you dwell with us. That we know that we are in the very spiritual presence of Jesus. That he is here with us. Dwelling among us, dwelling in us. It's right now. Huh. And we know that He's been with us. We know that he'll leave with us, walk with us. We know that he welcomes us, repentant sinners. We know that because we belong to him, that you are our father. And that even as he intercedes for us, he does intercede to the father who loves us and delights in us. So I pray that, God, as we come to this table, that you will burn in us the promise that you dwell with us, that you walk with us, that you are our God, that we are your people, that you welcome us, that you are our Father, that we are your sons and daughters. And that that is true. And that a day will come 
when we'll see it in its fullness. But till then, that you'll enable us to live upon these promises. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I remind you, this table is not the table of Grace Evangelical Presbyterian Church. It's the table of the Lord. He invites to it. All those who know themselves to be sinners in his sight without hope, except in his sovereign mercy. And all those who receive and depend upon our Lord Jesus as he's offered to us in the gospel as the savior of sinners who receive these promises of God and who desire then to live accordingly. If that's true for you, I invite you to come. These two sections come down this aisle to my left. These two down this aisle to my right. As you come, take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup and allow the promises of God to burn in your heart. Please come. This prayer for the third Sunday in Advent is a prayer that we wait well and that we study well and that we learn well so that we'll be prepared for when Jesus comes. Let's pray together. O Lord Jesus Christ, who at your first coming sent your messenger to prepare your way before you, grant that the ministers and stewards of your mysteries may likewise so prepare and make ready your way by turning the hearts of the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, that at your second coming to judge the world, we may be found an acceptable people in your sight. For you are alive and reign with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God forever. Amen.